0: Welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. This is the second last lecture in the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. As we come to the close, I want to point you in the direction of a new podcast regarding psychoanalysis. It's called Three Associating. That's t-h-r-e-e associating. Go and check it out. Lecture 14. Does personality change? Okay, right, I'm going to
1: just zoom straight into this because it's quite a long lecture. There's a couple of things in this lecture that are quite crucial to the themes of this year, and so I will be jumping up and down in the appropriate places, and if I were you I'd be taking notice of when I jump up and down because it's a major hint, okay? And then next week, there's no content to next week's lecture at all. All we do is we come along and, well, as many of you can come along, and we will brainstorm ways of answering questions. And what I will do is I will set some fake questions, you know, essay questions and short answer type questions, and I'll show you how I might brainstorm in trying to Answer them. And that should give you an idea of of how you might approach it, depending on your personality and your intellectual style. We're going to look at the whole issue of stability and change very briefly. We're going to look at what influences whether or not you find change if you're looking for it. Then we're going to take the whole notion of what change is hard, because there's all different meanings of that word. And then we're going to look at different forms of change. We're going to look at what might influence change. And then we're going to look at broader cultural concerns for just a couple of slides. Uh, I need to tell you though, there is one bit in the lecture which is so deadly dull. I just, I can't tell you, it's so boring, and I just have to apologise at that moment and if any of you fall asleep, completely understand, all right? And I'll wake you up as soon as we finish that bit of the lecture. It's not crucial, obviously, but in my obsessive way, I feel I need to give you those details. And you'll wonder why when I get to that point of the lecture. Why is she doing your stillness? This is terrible. Okay. Hopefully you won't think that about the whole one. Okay. So Bloom wrote a book called Stability and Change in Human Characteristics. One of my favorite textbook writers, and Lawrence Pervin says... Um, the stability of a characteristic can be a function of the constancy of the environment. And you notice that with, with older people, it looks like their personalities stay the same, but actually they just do the same things day in, day out. They buy the same vegetables, they go to the same shop, they go to the same cafe. And so it looks like personality is constant, but actually the environment is pretty constant as well. The whole reason that personality fascinates me is because Even the most powerful environments can affect people in non-uniform ways. And I remember seeing a a film that was utterly painful about the last moments of people's lives in the gas chamber. And some people were stepping on the head of others to try and get up to the last remaining bits of oxygen. And other people were shelter children. Okay, so you've got the most extreme environment that you think would produce panic in everyone. But some people manage to stay compassionate even in those moments. And there's some fabulous work written about panic and rage, you know, where it seems like there's only one way to respond, but individual differences are there, even there, even in very powerful environments. One of the things that's quite tough for us as psychologists is that our methodologies are pretty, what would you say, pretty rigorous in some ways but they really hamper us, they prevent us from actually getting at the phenomenon in other ways because we haven't got much time, we're usually trying to do everything really quickly, we're trying to write it up for the next, you know, um, conference overseas, and so we never do the kind of research that we really think is good research. You know, you've got the discussion section, well it would have been really good if we hadn't used uh, first-year students, but we're too lazy, so we did use 1st year students. And we can't really talk about causality, uh, because these are just correlational figures. For that, you'd need longitudinal studies. Someone else do that. Thank you very much. You know, and you know how it sounds. That's what we say all the time. But one of the weird things is, even if we had an unlimited budget, and even if we did measure behavior, you know, at the same day, at three o'clock, no, sorry, the same time, three o'clock, every day for a year, that still wouldn't really tell us about how a piece of behavior stays the same, what maintains it, what reinforces it, or how we could change it if we really wanted to. It's still a whole lot of little snapshots. You know, it's not actually looking at process. So to really understand change and process is a big ask. And I think anthropologists do it best when they do participant observation research. But that's not rigorous enough enough often for psychology. So it's a trade-off between what I would call ecological validity, going out into the field and really measuring the phenomenon. That's ecological validity. Versus rigor. Do I know what's changing and why? And the only way I know that is if I'm making people experience stuff. I'm putting them through experiences experimentally. Then I really know... But unfortunately, the sorts of things you can put a person through in a laboratory often doesn't really capture the heart of what you're interested in. And so that's why I really think we've got to be quite broad-minded about methodologies, and that's one of the major themes of the course. Okay, what influences whether you find change when you're looking at personality? Well, it depends what level of personality you're talking about. Dan McAdams has got three basic levels of personality. He talks about basic tendencies, that's number one. He talks about characteristic adaptions, that's number two. And the third level is life narrative. Now, as you go up from one to three, you find more change, basically. My basic tendencies probably stay roughly the same in certain ways. My characteristic adaptions, no way, put me in a different environment, and they change like that. My life narrative depends on who I'm talking to, what sort of story I will tell. Okay, so that's got heaps of possibilities for change. So the, if I say, does personality change? Your first answer would be, depends on what level of personality you're talking about. Costin McRae, who, the people I sort of love to hate, in a way, the five-factor model, they sort of agreed with Freud for one brief moment of their lives about this and nothing else, that they suggested personality remains stable after the age of 30. And Freud quite famously said, show me a woman of 30 and I'll show you a cadaver. Because her libido is so bound that nothing will change. A really dismal vision of life after 30, which fortunately I don't think is true. But Costa and Macrae, because they want the five factors to be real, they want them to be biologically underpinned, they want them to be stable. Yeah, he wasn't really egalitarian in that regard, only women. <laughs> he doesn't like women all that much if you read him carefully. <laughs> so, yeah, nice point. Okay, but look, even basic tendencies are quite abstract inclinations, and I can reveal my basic tendencies in quite different ways. And One of the most important things, I think, to pick up on You know how we love total scores and total subscale scores in psychology and, you know, if if at 13 you got a really high score on neuroticism and then at 30 you got exactly the same high score so your neuroticism hasn't changed. Is that true? Well, no. You might have got the score, a high score at 10 because you were afraid of the dark, okay? You might have got a high score at 30 because you've got obsessive compulsive rituals. Has your personality changed? Well, it has at the level of phenomenology of what you do and what you experience. Your personality has changed, but in terms of the total scale score, you're the same. So, and that's one of the real big difficulties is that when you rely on total scores and you rely on numbers, you might be masking real change because the manner of expressing those basic tendencies might have changed. You've either got panic attacks at 12 and paranoid ideation at 30, etc. So stability per se tells you nothing. And being able to predict the stability of someone's tray levels tells you nothing about why that stability occurred. I might think it's their personality, but actually they might live in a really invariant environment and that could be what's keeping them stable. And if I were to take them out of their home, I might suddenly see different aspects of them. But the big criticism that I've had about the five-factor model, and I've made no secrets about it this year, is it's not a real theory of personality. It's just descriptive. It's not explanatory. And I still hold to the truth of that now, um, despite the five-factor model having been out since about 85. So characteristic adaption is the second level of personality, according to Dan mcadams This is the way your basic tendencies are expressed in the real world. Now, Costa and McRae are not really interested in those, but there's no a priori basis why these are not also the stuff of personality, and I actually think they're quite important as objects of study, and they clearly change. So as soon as you move up from basic tendencies, you're getting a lot more change, I think. And there's some really nice old research in this area. Uh, Just looking at the the way that women's personalities expressed itself differently, depending on the life situation that they found themselves in. Um, If you suddenly become a mother, uh, you'll notice that you suddenly become a lot more responsible. You have to become more self-controlled much more tolerant, and there can actually be an increase in femininity merely because of the stuff you have to do, okay? In other words, you might have been you know, a killer cutthroat arguer on the sort of boardroom floor, but suddenly if you're um, nurturing a child for even a, a fraction of your day, your femininity scores are likely to rise because you'll be saying yes to those sorts of items you probably know the concept of generativity. It's kind of, you know, Eric Erickson's um, dichotomies like basic trust versus mistrust and how you resolve those throughout the psychosocial life course. And the final one is generativity versus despair. In other words, when you reach, you know, your later years, what do you look back on your life as having signified, as having contributed something, having left something worthwhile behind for the next generation? an ongoing source of fulfilment of interest, that's generativity. Now, interestingly, there is research suggesting that family-oriented women expressed increases in generativity compared with non-mothers or more career-oriented women. And it was in that order, basically, that generativity seems to be something that is uh, more apparent in women who have reproduced in a biological way rather than just reproduced in a cultural way by leaving their legacy through teaching and writing and whatever else. Now, those sorts of um, attributes of personality, agency and communion, which I've spoken to you a little bit about, do you remember? We and study that suggested whether you were high on agency or high on communion, influenced not only what you remembered about the past, but how linked up what you remembered about the past was. Can you remember which group it was? If you were higher on that thing, you remembered more social things, and you remembered things as being more connected and interlinked. Was it agency or communion? Can you remember? Yes, good old. Exactly right. So these seem to be quite sort of um, quite permeating personality tendencies. People suggest they influence what you get depressed about, even. And it seems as though that people moving between the ages of 31 and 41 decrease that focus on me, me, myself, I, and increase that sense of what am I doing for others and what, what matters to others. So these shifting preoccupations or shifting thought patterns seem to be adaptive responses to changing life situations. So a basic theme that I think is quite pivotal if you're doing research is what are the measures that you're using like? Are they decontextualized measures or are they contextualized? Let me give you an example. An example from the big five that I would call a decontextualized item is Do you fight a lot with family and friends? You see why it's decontextualized? Because it's not saying, it's not allowing you to say, I fight like cats and dogs with my family, but I never fight with my friends. They're asking you, to average across context. And if you use decontextualized measures, you miss out on a lot of stuff that I actually think is really important. Because to me, to understand personality, you want to know what triggers a person. What's going to make them go into their weakness, as you say in sort of new age literature, or what's going to bring out their strengths. And that's what you want to know. Because if you're uh, thinking of going to the Antarctic with someone, you want to know what's likely to put them into a blue fit of rage, and you want to avoid that. Okay, So those if-then contingencies are actually quite crucial. But these decontextualized measures, it's kind of like an inert profile. They're the five questions that you would ask if you were about to meet a stranger. And it just gives you the sort of, what signature about that person's dispositions? What dispositions do they have? What do they tend to do? What do they tend to seek out or avoid? And that's a kind of de- decontextualized measure. So, what's lacking in decontextualized measure is they don't usually give you specific enough information for you to be able to predict what a person is going to do. And that's something that I think is a serious drawback. So for instance, a narcissistically inclined person might just look like a raging egotist until you threaten them. And then suddenly you'll see another side to their personality. So the kind of personality level that I'm interested in, and feel free not to agree, but the personal interest is those kind of if then things like my dominance shows when my competence is threatened, or I fall apart when people try to comfort me, or I talk most when I'm nervous. Now, I know I said this to you in lecture two, but I'm reiterating it because I think this is a really uh, powerful, more predictive level of personality. And you want to assess things at this level, I think. What's lacking in decontextualized measures? is it's kind of like the stats has got to do all the work to structure the scales or to structure what goes with what. Whereas with more contextualized measures, you see the person in their own environment and you start to sort of see the kind of the organization and structuring of a given person's personality. Like she is most kind when someone weeps. Yeah or she absolutely loses it when someone arbitrarily gives her a parking ticket. Yeah, those sorts of things that tell you. And so what what I suppose it does is it shows you how a person's personality is organized across context and through time. And that's the kind of organization and integration that you need for a real theory in a way. Because in a way, for you to know, say that I'm conscientious that tells you one thing, but if you know that I'm conscientious and cold, that gives you a different sense of my personality than if you know that I'm conscientious and warm. In other words, one trait is going to be influenced by the other traits that a person has. And of course, um, the expression of the trait is influenced by all sorts of other factors at different levels of personality. So for instance, um, I was raised initially in the Scottish culture, and there were quite strong requirements of what you did and did not do as a woman in a Scottish culture. Okay? And that changed as soon as I moved to New Zealand and then to Australia. In other words, the cultural level, cultural context, shaped the kind of life stories that I could form, which shaped what I thought was appropriate to display socially and in public. So it's like even at the basic tendency or the characteristic adaption level, that's going to be influenced by the narratives and the cultural level. In other words, it's all going to be sort of having some kind of interplay. So contextualized measures, you can spot them. It's the if-then contingencies. What stimuli or experiences evoke certain characteristic responses in you? Like if you were telling, if you had a pen pal and you wanted to tell them two things about you that were really true and and unusual about you, I bet it would be at that if-then level, no. okay, that would be what captures your uniqueness. And my example, my own example, is I have enormous difficulty with arbitrary authority, right, I'm not your greater and I get quite funky. Um Something that's quite common culturally um, is that if you show fear and you're a man, you, you quite often experience shame, you'll be shamed for that. Because the culture does not want you to feel okay about showing fear. It's seen as girly or unmanly in some way, and you will be shamed uh, for doing so. Now, one of my favourite researchers, Carol Izzard, he was a PhD student of Sylvan Tompkins, and he's got this beautiful study with young boys. And what Izard does well, I think, is he shows That which emotions end up going together in our lives, end up going together because of the experiences we've had at the hands of other people. So it's not like I'm born with shame and fear hardwired together because I'm a boy. But my word, shame and fear come to be co-assembled if I'm a boy. Okay? No worries. (laughs) No worries at all. It's fine. And so what Isad shows is the way that he, he gives you a case study of the way that shame can be co-assembled with other affects. Now, the common one for narcissists, for narcissists is shame and aggression go together. But shame and fear are also uh, quite common. Shame and aggression. I, I just thought I'd, I'd quote this. This is from a piece of writing that I did many years ago now. Um, It's just a little excerpt, but I just want to show it to you because um, my then-doctoral student, Wayne Warburton, um, zoomed in on this when he devised his control, aggression, schema scale, which is really beautiful. And what he was looking at there is the way that when you increase your dominance over others, that enables you to regain a sense of control that you lost in the moment of shame. You think about shame, what happens there, the, what, the pivotal thing about shame is everybody's looking at me, right? I want to die. I want the floor to open up, right? Self-awareness. But it's not just that. It's at the very moment that you feel absolutely at your most stupid, your most contemptuous, your most belittled. Okay, so, that, so shame is like a real loss of control. It's a, a real loss of face. And so one way to... Overcome that. It's, you know, what are you looking at? You know that kind of immediate aggression to, to regain that sense of agency in the face of shame, and that's a very, very common coupling, and it's one of the signature things about narcissistically inclined people. It's like it's what really marks out the narcissist as quite different from the egotist. But there's also a sort of like a, a sort of recursive loop: fear, shame, fear. Imagine I feel fear then someone shames me for feeling fear. And then I go, oh, God, I can't show my fear, so I'm going to withdraw and not let anyone know what a wuss I am. And so I might then develop um, social anxiety or social phobia. So one of the things that can happen is if, we're, if we've actually got quite low self-worth, when we're shamed, we will actually just withdraw and retreat and hide and feel contempt towards ourselves. Okay? And so it's quite a common cultural phenomenon that men are taught to feel ashamed of being afraid. And it has quite strong ramifications for what it feels like to be you and, and what happens when you do feel fear. You almost feel afraid of being afraid because it's so socially taboo. And that's called affective co-assembly. It's when things that you're not born with wired together end up priming each other in some way. Because experience has brought them together for you, okay? And it's often a social experience that's done that. And that, I think, is a really interesting building block in how different personality styles arise. Is what affects go with what in how personalities arise? What affects go with what? And how did they come to go together? It's usually a social experience that brings those affects together. And so when I talk about the psycho of history of the person, that's precisely what I mean. If I felt really dependent and needy, what sort of response did I get from the person caring for me? Did they soothe me or did they ridicule me? Because that's going to have a huge effect on what I think of the world. That's going to be the first step towards mistrust if I get humiliated for experiencing dependency and longing and neediness. And so many of the phenomena of interest to personality arises at this level, the way that affects link up with other affects, or the beliefs you form, it's unseemly for a woman to show anger, it's not proper, okay, that's a belief I've got about how one should be as a woman, yeah, and often you've got those belief links within yourself, and you don't know that you've got them, but they're often what's quite unique to you, like no one will ever love me or if they really knew how needy I was, they would reject me. Those kinds of deep-seated beliefs. And often they've arisen contingently, not biologically. They've arisen contingently, just by the experiences that you've bumped into in life. And sometimes it's not as random as just bumping into those experiences. Sometimes culture has got it all mapped out for you, okay, so that certain things become less likely for you, depending on your gender. And so sometimes it's quite explicit socialization. But what happens is that there are con- cascading constraints. Some developmental pathways get closed off. Other developmental pathways get opened up due to social phenomena, You know, due to the sorts of socialization experiences that your parents have set up for you. And this is what makes um, signature <laughs> patterns of development for particular personality styles arise. Now, obviously, I'm, I rave on all the time about emotion because that's just the thing that really, really fascinates me. Somebody else might emphasise cognition a lot more than I do, um, but that's just my bias. So I just need to let you know that. I'm sure you've noticed. So let's take an example with psychopathic development. We know that young budding psychopaths, fledgling psychopaths, can't pick up on another person's distress cues from about age four. And certainly by the time they're an adult, they're not very good at picking up a fear. So the the recognition of fear and sad facial and vocal expressions is less than optimal. They're hopeless at picking up on those two sets of things from the world. Now what that means is that they don't pick up on when other people are suffering. And one of the things that prevents us from exploiting other people is we pick up that they're suffering. And so that capacity for moral discernment suffers in psychopathically inclined people. So that's one small loop of cascading constraints that I'm illustrating there. What Koshanska's done, and she's, she's just an amazing developmental researcher, she says, if you're a parent and you want to socialize your child into having a conscience, like knowing right from wrong and not harming others, How you socialise that child depends on what the child brings to the equation. If they've got a really fearful temperament, you'll be able to get them to develop a conscience by saying, look at that poor Johnny, he's really upset because you thumped him over the head with his truck. You know, that's a really bad thing to do. And the kid's going, oh, yes, that's terrible, Johnny's really upset. But if you've got a fearless child, yeah, what of it? (laughs) You know? I hit Johnny. look, he looks great when he cries. Look at those tears, right? It's not going to work. If I try to do the empathy induction, it literally falls on deaf ears because the child really does not pick on pick up on the distress of the other. So different parenting styles are required depending on whether you've got a fearful child or a fearless child. So Kaczynski just saying the if-then contingencies that you want to orchestrate need to be different depending on the nature of the kid that you're working with. Now, with narcissistic development, it's not so much an incapacity to pick up on the sadness and the distress of others. It's what happens to your own sadness and distress that seems to make the difference. If your longing and neediness have met the right affective social uptake, in other words, the person's gone, Oh, that's okay. I'll look after you. Hey, that's all right. Don't worry. Hey, don't, don't feel ashamed about needing help. Everybody needs help at that stage, right? That's one kind of social uptake. If I go, oh, you loser, you know, what, you can't tie your shoelaces in you three. That's pathetic, right? That's a different kind of affective social uptake, namely a shaming one. And so with narcissistic development, the story has to be told around longing, neediness, inadequacy. And it's like, it's as if something has happened that has made them feel it's not okay to hang out. It's not okay to be found wanting or needing someone. That there's been, there hasn't been the right sort of affective uptake is one story of narcissistic development. But what happens if there isn't that sort of attuned social uptake is you start to diminish your experience and your expression of emotion. And so you start to control your expressive displays, you tend to avoid showing need, and you avoid drawing close to others in a trusting sort of way. So you've already taken that path away from trust towards mistrust. And Adam Phillips suggests that humiliation arises when we've got these bodily needs and we can't step aside from them, they're just part of our body. But something in the environment makes us experience those needs as a tyranny. Now, because I'm really interested in cults and those sorts of phenomena, one of the things that always interested me about cult-like phenomena, like Earhart's seminar training, EST, or Forum, and a few of its derivatives that are out there now, is that they will often restrict your sleep, which is a very basic human need. They'll restrict your access to the toilet, They'll ex- restrict your solitude they'll restrict your access to you know basic things like food and water and those are your inevitable needs and if you end up feeling God I'm just so hungry or I just want to sleep I don't want to have to listen to this another minute right then your own bodily needs are the enemy because you're struggling to control them and not be vulnerable in the face of them and uh, most of Arthur Kersler's writing, darkness at noon and things like that are about what happens in Soviet regimes and historically around sleep deprivation etc. Okay. So you think about it when you're a child, your access to food, money, going to the loo, everything, is kind of controlled by somebody else. And so the possibility of them targeting you and making you feel really humiliated is is actually quite high if they wanted to do so. Thank goodness most people don't. But you are actually quite a needy, unfinished little organism when you come into the world. You know, it takes you ages to learn sphincter to control. You walk around in these things called nappies, you know? How embarrassing. You know, so in other words, there's, there's this whole neediness that is that makes you very vulnerable to shame, I suppose. And it's very easy to explicitly try to shame someone, which is what humiliation is. It's deliberately exposing a weakness in the other. That's what humiliation is, deliberately exposing a weakness in the other. And when you've experienced that, it's quite possible for you to feel contemptuous of those others, to imagine all manner of revenge once you're strong enough and old enough and big enough and bold enough to get your own back on them, Or you might even exercise a kind of covert or sneaky power or outright aggression over others. And that's one thing that happens when your early world has been too marked by humiliation and shame. What happens is you start to show contempt towards those others who've treated you so badly. But there may also be a residual contempt towards the needy parts of yourself. You may accidentally take it on board and think they're right, there is something pathetic about you know, hanging out and longing for others, so I won't do that anymore, okay? And that's that's the sort of thing that I think happens, not just to narcissists, but narcissists that start to move down the more Machiavellian path, where the issue becomes around power. Okay, around gender, there's quite explicit socialization, and I think I've put this article up online, Block, Geada and Block. It's a short one, but it's a really nice little article. And what it shows, basically, is that sex role socialization enlarges the scope of boys' experiences, while it decreases the range of experiences that are available to girls. In other words, really young girls might have had the same access to being agentic, but as they get socialized into being feminine, they are removed from those experiences of mastery competency, being able to act on the world. And what Block, Getter, and Block found in their longitudinal study was that the more intelligent young girls could see the writing on the wall, could see what the future held for them, and they got depressed. So they got this sort of anticipatory depression, which I thought was a remarkable finding. Whereas in the same study, They found that boys were permitted greater freedom to explore, to show curiosity, independence, competition. In other words, boys' socialization practices seem to enhance their agency. And by agency, I mean what Jack Block would call a premise system about the self that presumes or anticipates having consequences on the world. A kind of instrumental competence or mastery. I give you an example. My first lecturing job at Sydney Uni, um, the, the room I got didn't have any much of a nice outlook at all. And um, one of my lecturers said, "Oh, if you smile sweetly and talk to the right people, you know, you might get a better office." And I just smiled and said, "I could just plant a magnolia tree." <laughs> You know, like, why, why do you have to go and smile sweetly? You just plant a tree. I didn't realize what a boy I was being at that moment, but I thought it was quite cute in hindsight. But girls are, have reduced exposure to situations, encouraging awareness that, that um, instead of agency, that they have to sort of evoke things from the environment. Like, I had to smile sweetly so that I evoked a sort of nurturing response from others who would give me a better office rather than that sense of resourcefulness and, you know, your own competence. So um, feminine self-percepts tend to include a, a reduced sense of agency and initiative. Now, I'm not saying that all women are feminine. I'm just saying that feminine is a kind of, it's an ideal type, if you like. And there are all sorts of discourses in the culture to try and make you aspire to that and emulate that. Okay, and sometimes it's you know done by um, indirect means. Like it's actually quite hard to run away from a raging bull if you're in high heels, for instance. Okay, so so certain of the sort of cultural apparel in, enhances the tendency that you you will have less um, competency and less agency. Okay. So what Block, Gerda and Bloch say is that cultural expectations limit a girl's experiences more powerfully than her upper arm strength, her running speed or her spatial ability. So biology may not be destiny, but culture certainly maybe was one of their conclusions. So what I'm talking about is interactionism really, where you've got this person environment interaction and you've got to look at the role of the organismic factors, like what you bring to the equation. But you've also got to look at the context, and by that I mean the social context, who you socialize with, your family, and and what sort of culture they're inserted into, or what sort of subculture, because that's what's going to create your unique history. It's going to turn you down certain paths of change, and it's going to make sure that you don't go down certain other paths of change. So social experiences with others, and within a culture, are the variables that we also need to take very seriously when we're looking at personality development, and that's a major thing. Okay, narratives. The third level of personality. As you move from traits through characteristic adaptions up to the level of narratives, more change becomes possible more easily. The sort of affective schemas and personality styles that we've got shape the kinds of stories that we tell about our lives. And what I said to you um, two weeks ago and Celia the week before that, is that in a sense there's a top-down effect that narratives can also shape what we experience. Like if I've got a narrative about what it is to be a girl, um, that means there's certain stories I just won't tell, or I'll only tell to my friends. Now, the second thing, does personality change? You've got to say, what do we mean by change? Can I just steal my own thunder for a minute here so that you've got this as an organizing schema in your mind for the next few slides? Because this will really, really help. When we cope, what we do is we explain things away. Okay? That's what coping is. I hadn't studied enough. I was overtired. It was a really tough test. Um, I don't care anyway. No, joking. You know, but coping, you explain it away, you make it it's not stable. It's not part of me. It was just the situation. It was a one-off. It won't happen again. I'll be alright. Okay. And that's, that's what coping is. But sometimes truly to change in life, you've actually got to go, this has been going on for too long. And this has been happening to me regularly and reliably. And instead of explaining away, you've actually got to gather it together and to let it crystallize so that you can go, I'm not going to live like this anymore, okay? So coping dissipates things and cuts the links, and certain forms of change require that you make those links and see those links and take them very seriously and change. So that's the kind of big dialectic that sort of underpins the next little bit of the lecture. Okay. So, change can occur at all sorts of levels. For instance, the things that you have got no control over whatsoever. As a young girl, suddenly the shorts that you could wear at 11 don't fit at 13 because your hip bones have gone boom! It's like, how did that happen? Nothing to do with me. Just happened. Okay? With just underlying mechanisms that were playing themselves out in my body. Then you start to notice that you get a honing of mate preferences. You might have messed around with the same sex for a while and decide you're heterosexual, or you might have messed around with the same sex and decided, oh, actually, that's that's it for me. I'm, I'm going to be homosexual. okay? But you start to hone your mate preferences because of mechanisms that are just occurring within you. And um, there's an increased attention to your, vis- your physical appearance around that time, and there's an onset of quite vivid sexual and romantic fantasies. And those are all changes that just happen and you have to ride them and usually hide them from your mom in one way or another. Okay. So change can occur in all sorts of levels. Then you've got what's called developmental shunting. I grew up in a very small city and it was kind of social death as a girl to be sexual too soon because the gossips got hold of your reputation and that was it. You were wrecked, you know. You know, you were a skank or whatever. They had all these lovely turns, not, you know, waiting to describe you. So if you took that path, all sorts of things were closed off for you later on in life, like becoming a prefect or whatever. It's kind of like you got labelled very powerfully and you got put in your place. So... Depending on whether or not you went for short-term sexual encounters and bedammed, as many of my friends did, good on them, Yep. or if you go, oh, no, I'm going to wait for a long-term mate, too risky in this environment to be sexual, okay, that's going to make a difference to you. So whether you're more or less promiscuous um, is going to have a, a developmental shunting effect. Shunting is when the train kind of goes down one track rather than another, you know, they, when they do that sort of... Um, I think they used to pull a lever and it would make the train go in one path rather than the other. That's David Buss's work for uh, sort of developmental tracking that occurs in us. We can also change because of what our local environment requires of us. Like, say I had a guy that was really cute looking and he was quite unsure of himself, so he flirted outrageously with every woman that he could find. I might think, oh God, I'm a bit of a green monster, I'm so jealous, this is terrible. I've just got, I've got this jealousy problem, do you know, what am I going to do about it? And then, you know, he finally goes off with one of the other women, and I get another partner, and he's just as cute looking, but he's really confident, he barely notices other women at all. Suddenly I don't have a jealousy problem anymore, I'm sort of the same person, but I'm in relation to a different mate. So my life world has changed and the adaptive problems I'm faced with, now I have to cope with the possibility of commitment. Ah, okay, there's something else to worry about. But if you move from being with a low conscientious person to a high conscientious person, you might discover that you've actually no longer got a jealousy problem. So whose problem was it, in a sense? That's what I mean by, by taking context seriously. Sometimes your social relationship is part of your personality's context and almost part of your personality. By change, we can also replace old strategies with new strategies. Um, This is my favourite example from one of the books I read. Crying to get what one wants gets less effective from childhood to adulthood, although lots of us keep it as a strategy no matter what. Okay, this is where I really want you to sort of focus on forms of change because I was very interested obviously in religious conversion that was what I did my PhD on and so this whole notion of change just really fascinated me and I don't know about you but I always sort of felt like I wanted personality to be open and malleable and able to be changed because it just seemed too dismal if you were born with your personality and that was it you know that means great you discover you've got all these personality problems far out now I can describe my personality problems hmm Mm, Not great. I always hoped that bits of it would be able to be changed, and I I do think that it it can be changed. But as the Charles et al. study showed, sometimes you're repeating the past in ways that you don't even realise. Okay, so state changes. These are contextual demands that disturb our equilibrium. You having to sit still for two hours outrageous, isn't it? Two hours listening to somebody talk. I don't know how we can imagine that people can do it. We know that people can possibly stay awake for 20 minutes and we have two-hour lectures. It's just insane. Okay, so that's a contextual demand that's disturbing your equilibrium, although the chairs are not too bad. it's There's an organism context mismatch that's small, vocal, transient, or expected. Like if you walk into a hot room, Yeah, or if you do without food for four hours, okay, you can manage it, right? Your personality system can compensate quite easily. You can not think about food, yeah, or you can think about the lovely drink of cold water you're going to have in an hour's time. They're temporary and reversible. And that's something that's quite important if you're doing research, um, because if you're interested in state anxiety, I think you've got to take into account tray anxiety as well, because if I'm predisposed to experience anxiety, I'll go to a higher level of anxiety if you put me through that state than someone who's not really that disposed to anxiety. So I always think you want to measure both of those things, the dispositional tendency as well as the state, and you can get some very nice little experiments when you think in that way. Okay. Then there's transformational changes. This is where there's an organism context mismatch that's large, pervasive, enduring and unexpected. So for instance, retrenchment. When you lose your job, it wasn't expected. You're the sole breadwinner and you're, that's the only firm of its kind in that country. So suddenly you've got to envisage shifting countries. Okay. That's really going to start to, to, place demands on your adaption and coping. And those discrepancies have a greater chance of producing quite radical or transformational change. Okay, so the examples I'm interested in, obviously, religious conversion and brainwashing, but also rehabilitation, like if I've um, broken a leg, yeah, or if I've um, given up uh, drugs, right, my personality is going to change quite powerfully. A more painful example is decompensation. And that's something that clinical psychologists talk about quite a lot. Um, Decompensation can occur when you lose a loved one, for example. Your whole personality structure can sometimes crumble. And it can happen if you've been going through prolonged and intense stress. It's a kind of fragmentation of the personality. So other forms of change. Developmental change is an obvious one. Strategic change, like a, um, my partner once kicked a tree because he got out unfairly in cricket, right? Not real great for the bones in his feet, okay? He learned that's not a really good way of expressing my frustration when I'm out unfairly in cricket. I will strategically change my response to that situation. The doctor was fairly pleased then there's experiential change, right? Where you might um, fall in love and suddenly the world is a different place and you're a different person. But you can also have quite abrupt changes. Um, like I imagine the American people experienced the world very differently after a bomb was dropped on Hiroshima Russian. I think the whole world changed as a result of that. Um, you can also have quite abrupt changes if you find a guru, a religious leader that suddenly gives meaning to your life, then suddenly life is not what it was before, and people often change their name. So, one example of abrupt change which completely fascinates me, because it's very like William James's notion of conversion, but I realise it's 3.55, and you've got to go and get a coffee.
0: That was lecture 14 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie-Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. (laughs)